Talk Recorded live. Good evening and welcome to the Women of the Revolution. My name is Susan Bonner and I am here with Yankee Mom and we want to welcome you to our history lesson. How are you doing, Yankee Mom? Well, better than my computer. <laughs> uh, I think it's time to take it into the man. I think I might have a little boo-boo in it. And my printer died and, oh, you know, it's just technology is so much fun when it works. This is like Ari, you know? I mean, it's, it's the, oh, what's, what's that car that's always in the shop? Yeah, the, uh, Fiat. Fiat's were always in the shop. <laughs> it's it's got to be tweaked. So anyways, but it's, um, I'm waiting for, it looks good so far. So everybody, you know, uh, <laughs> I'm up. Pretty good. Okay, we're ready to go now. I don't have to freak out at all. Okay. Okay. <laughs> we're good? We're good. All right. Well, as if you are a first time listening to this radio show, uh, we do a history lesson on the women of the revolution. That's the title. But we get into a lot of the backstory because some of these women do really not do, do not have a lot of um, information about. We we don't get it. It's hit or miss. And. We are going to Rhode Island tonight, which we have not so far. And Deb and I, Yankee Mom and I have been doing this for a year and a half. Yeah, about a year and a half, almost two years. And in the two years or a year and a half, I'll have to look on my, on my dates, uh, we've never gone to Rhode Island, which is considered the middle theater of the Revolutionary War, correct? Yeah, not really. We've mentioned it. Well, is it the middle theater? Is it part of the middle theater or the northern? Oh, um, yeah. Right on the line. Uh, wow. It's it's the New England colony. So let's see. Oh, uh, I think I think it's the bottom of the north. They're in theater. <laughs> right. That's what I'm thinking, too. It's like one of these in-between places. Um, and we have never highlighted it or talked about it, and Little Lord Old Island has been excluded, which is very unusual for us. Mm-hmm. But we are going to Rhode Island tonight, and we are also going to be talking some, about something that was very important, not only in colonial times, but especially during the Revolution, and that was newspapers. This is one of Yankee Mom's favorite subjects, we would be talking about printing, which was extremely important back in those days. And also, I found out that we did have a postal service, and our lady's going to be involved in all of this. She's a businesswoman, believe it or not. Feminazis out there, they did exist back in the day. In the early colonial days, women were much freer than they were in any place on the world, in the world here in the, in the colonies. And her name is... Mary Catherine Goddard. I love that name, Mary Catherine. It is such an Irish name, and to me, it, it, to me, it's a Catholic name as well. But Mary Catherine Goddard, she was very important during the Revolution, and her papers were very important during the Revolution. 
and we will tell you everything surrounding her because, again, this is one of the women that we do not have a lot of information about. But we have information about what surrounded her and what was going on at the time. And, again, since we've never been to Rhode Island, uh, it's, uh, it was exciting to me for um, Yankee Mom to find this because I, I did. I said to her, I'm like, we never went to Rhode Island. <laughs> no, no. So without further ado, Yankee Mom is going to launch us with a history of Rhode Island. Okay, and this is from Molly's Rhode Island blogspot dot com, which is a really cool blog I just discovered while looking up Rhode Island. She has wonderful, uh, wonderful posts on all things Rhode Island. But we'll start off with her post. Um, Material culture in the 1630s to 1660s. And um, she has a wonderful little map there of the area from uh, the time. Life during the initial colonial period in Rhode Island, beginning with its founding in 1636 and lasting, shall we say, for a few decades, was more similar to life in Massachusetts English colonies than their southern neighbors, the Virginia plantation colonies. Yet there are many differences even between the almost sister colonies of Massachusetts and Rhode Island. During its first few decades, Rhode Island was much smaller and had fewer direct settlers than its larger neighbor, Massachusetts. Mainly, Rhode Island's small white communities consisted of immigrants from Massachusetts who had found that colonies' stringent Puritan stance a bit stifling. Overall, the settlers were very religious, but often they were religious outcasts, seekers, Quakers, Baptists, and Jews found safe harbor in the small religiously tolerant villages Rhode Island boasted in its early years. Local government was somewhat different also. Suffrage extended to every land-owning man of age, regardless of his church creed. Roger Williams proposed that it is impossible to see into a man's heart, so what does it profit to insist that he convert with his lips before voting. Material life was simple, no doubt, and relied heavily on trade with the native Narragansett Indians initially. Yet Rhode Island settlers were not the indulgent gentlemen of Virginia, nor were they the purest-minded Anglicans of Massachusetts. The Red Island's new residents proved more industrious than the Virginians and less prejudiced than the Massachusetts folk. Rhode Island villages, the first villages, that is, were fairly purchased from Indian friends and were small in number. This alone helps account for some of the Wampanoag and Narragansett acceptance. Small towns of only a dozen or so people were hardly a danger to Native societies. These settlers might easily be incorporated into the Algonquin government of assimilating small tribes into a larger Native realm. This seems to have been the case initially with Rhoda Rhode Island, and Roger Williams himself was especially diligent to learn the Algonquin language, including several of its northeastern dialects. After Rhode Island continued in this almost isolated way for several decades, that is, Rhode Island almost sought to isolate itself from its unfriendly Massachusetts neighbor, yet after this rather isolated, mild, tolerant beginning, what to me is a shocking development arose an almost sudden interest in the African slave trade. In 1652, Rhode Island acquired its first African slaves, purchased from ships which passed that way, usually en route as follows. From Europe... Can I interrupt you a moment? Uh Uh-huh. Okay, I want to do a couple of similarities here to give uh, 
so that uh, give food for thought. There was another colony, which was Pennsylvania. William Penn had the same idea of religious freedom. Because when we talked before Massachusetts, we did the Massachusetts Bay Company, which was made up of Puritans. So that's when they were talking about the religious intolerant neighbors in Massachusetts. And Pennsylvania was the same way. It was founded for it. the idea was a religious tolerance. The other thing, if you notice, when the colonists first came, the, Indian, the Indians were very friendly and tolerant of them. The problems arose, and correct me if I'm wrong, when they started, their numbers started increasing alarmingly. More and more people were coming to the colonies, and that's when the natives started getting, well, restless. Uh, before that, I mean, we talked about Pennsylvania. They were friendly. We talked about the, the parts of Massachusetts. They were friendly, too. It was just that the sheer number of Europeans that were coming here got the problem, right? Well, it wasn't only that. It was Britain, too. Britain's um, arrogance, imperialistic nature. Right. You know, they mm-hmm. came over believing that they were just, um, you know, lesser beings and that Britain, had, and or it wasn't only Britain, but, you know, the, the people that came over, uh, their their uh, royalty firmly believed that what they wanted they could take. Well, but the ones that were very pious and religious, they did. They wanted to convert the Indian, the Indians. Well, yeah, I mean, they were the the, the missionaries that you know um, part of the whole Christian thing was you know they had to save these poor Indians from themselves and their pagan. Uh, you know, spirituality, and they had to bring them into Christianity so that they would be saved. Well, and so we have Pennsylvania being founded on religious freedom. We have Rhode Island being founded on religious freedom. Virginia also. And if you think about these are later colonies that were colonized. And Maryland came over here for to have a Catholic settlement. So I just want to emphasize it's all Christianity, people. We come from Christian roots. Yes, but they even, you know, let the, the Jews move in. You know, Rhode Island was known for, I mean, it, 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 the people, especially Roger Williams, believed that you could not have liberty without freedom of religion. Not from religion, of religion. There is a difference. And a lot of people don't know that today. Okay. Where was okay, continue. <laughs> <laughs> ah, okay, yes, the slave thing here. Um, Rhode Island turned out to be a key port involved in the trade as it lies slightly south of Massachusetts and contained many entrepreneur-type settlers. By 1661, though not whole, wholly due to the slave trade as it had not developed much yet, Rhode Island was beginning to be quite prosperous. Roger Williams and his band were no longer ruling the white roost politically. It was more involved with Europe now, yet it was still on working terms with the Indians because of furs, fishing, whaling, etc. One European traveler, a Swiss surgeon named Felix Christian Sporey, noted that in the early Massachusetts Bay and Narragansett Bay towns, Indian wampum was incorporated into the English settlers' monetary system. So we can assume that the early days in Rhode Island were particularly friendly with the natives, whom Williams had always acknowledged to be the natural owners of the land, in so much 
that the two monetary systems were partially merged. Um, let's see. Uh, just a couple of anecdotes. Um, there are no, there was no scarcity of greens, fish, and game in the area. Spory does mention that he could not find all the medici- medicinal plants he knew in England, but the ones that were there were so populous they were shipped to England. First timber, fish, and fish oil. Tobacco and other products were also being exported already. Horses and livestock had been transported there, and whaling had begun to be a prosperous business. With such plentiful timber and imported livestock on the rise, Rhode Islanders typically lived in wooden houses and had small gardens and a few animals to sustain its households, while still relying upon local fish and the like to supplement their diets and pocketbooks. Borey calls Rhode Island Red Island, as indeed it was called for a while. His entire account is quite colorful, and if it is in fact true, it paints Rhode Island and the other Bay colonies as relatively thriving fishing towns whose business and livings were intertwined with the native Indian tribes. He does not mention the presence of African slaves, perhaps because he did not travel very far inland. One can only wonder how different America's material history would be had the partnering with the Indians continued instead of turning to the growing African slave trade, of which tiny Rhode Island was quickly becoming the head. Now, to go up a little bit... um, It says, in the... Wait a minute, I have to find um, the other one. She's kind of got them up and down. Um, Let's say it says here, first, we must understand that Rhode Island and Massachusetts are almost inseparable in their history, European and native. As for the English, Providence founders were, in fact, Plymouth and Salem's cast-offs. Rhode Island was first thought to be a convenient banishment ground than a growing threat to Massachusetts and a Cold War brooded between the colonies throughout the colonial era. Furthermore, many of the tribes who lived in Rhode Island also lived and or heavily interacted with Massachusetts. The indigenous inhabitants of the area were several tribes of the Algonquin Indians, including the Wampanoag, the Narragansett, and the Pequot among others. Memorably, the names of cities, rivers, etc. reflect the prominent thriving Indian culture in the early years of colonization, including the following, Narragansett Bay, Massachusetts, Massasoit, Nantucket, Mashpee, Natick, and I could go on. One has but to view a map of the area and be overwhelmed by everything from gold courses to creeks that bear names which are obviously Algonquin. When the English arrived just east of Rhode Island in Massachusetts, they were certainly not alone. Um, it goes on about that. As for the English settlers in Providence, uh, the first contact of Roger Williams and his group of immigrants uh, with the native tribes. Uh, of course, the Indians had previous contact with the English, French, and Dutch, some of it relatively fair trade and some of it unfriendly. There had been occasional kidnapping on both sides and even a few deaths. Both sides were still trying to maintain some form of civility, however, mainly as they both sought trade with each other. And at any rate, William's little band seemed to have little trouble living alongside the Indians. Surely this was largely owing to the fact that the group of people were not seeking gold or glory, and while they were in a way seeking God, Their main objective was not evangelicalism. They were not seeking territory expansion, only a home 
for their small companies. Their leader did not consider the king of England to be sovereign over the land and therefore only lived on land they had fairly purchased from the natives. And also Williams himself, being a brilliant linguist, he soon required no interpreter when speaking with the various tribes. The founding of Providence by Roger Williams and his 12 friends, however, hardly represents the whole of Rhode Island's history. As the colony grew and England's interest was piqued, greed from various directions began to overtake the colony's once peaceful and almost unnoticed beginnings. So, um, let's see. Okay, a little bit about Roger Williams. He was a Puritan dissenter who advocated fair trade with the Indians. Williams was a Baptist-turned-seeker of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, a zealous man. He loved to debate theology and civil convictions. Three issues, favoring freedom and nonconformity in religion, complete separation of church and state, and disapproval of the English practice claiming American lands for the king despite any native population already inhabiting it, set him at odds with the Church of England that the Puritans brought to America. Williams was hardly popular in Plymouth when he proclaimed that he believed the colony charters to be invalid, seeing that they were never approved by the Indians. Williams eventually moved to Salem, but his views there were hardly any better received. In 1635, Williams was banished from the church and subsequently from the colony. The, banished, the banishment was, a civil, was as civilized as possible. Williams was given several months to get his affairs in order and return to England. Instead, he chose the life of an exile and embarked alone on a 105-mile 100 trek into the northern Massachusetts wood. There he lived three months with a native Wampanoag tribe where whom he seems to have been friends with previously, and reportedly he was well-received by their chief, Manasoit, also. It is a bit unclear where his wife was at this point, though eventually she and her two children ended up living with Roger again. Within a few months, several other banished people and a few friends had joined Williams, and it seemed reasonable to build a settlement together. But this Williams would not do without permission from the Indians. So the tiny group of 12 people pulled their money and in 1636 purchased a plot of land from the Narragansett Indian tribe. Williams named the village Providence after the provision and good providence of God. By this time, his wife and children had joined him and he had a third child born, the first baby ever born in Providence, whom he named Providence also. By 1637, some more Puritan dissenters had been sent to Williams, banishment becoming the Puritans' new favorite treatment of dissenters. As compared to execution, it called less attention and gave less of an appearance of failure to the king back at home. Between 1637 and 1640, the colony grew somewhat, town agreements were signed, and thus Roger Williams founded the first American city based on the principles of complete liberty of conscience concerning religion, and the government was restricted to civil matters only. The colonists had expanded their territory also, having now purchased Adquidneck Island, present-day Rhode Island. Though many focused mainly on religious freedom, Williams was no fool politically. Although he regarded the king's authority over American lands as ludicrous, he knew to successfully prosper, the colonists would need England's stamp of approval. Therefore, Williams traveled to London, and in 1644, he obtained a charter from the king granting him the land. 
Williams also was a gifted linguist, and while in London in 1643, he had published his first book entitled A Key into the Languages of America. This remarkable book detailed his studies of several Native American languages, particularly Narragansett. Amazingly, after the language died out later due to later British takeover, it was Williams' book that preserved it, at least partially. The next year... Uh, the year in which Williams obtained the charter, he published his most famous book, The Bloody Tenet of Persecution for Cause of Conscience. It is worth mentioning that in 1652, on a second trip to England, Williams published a sequel in which he detailed the recent historical conflicts over religion and the millions of martyrs who had died on each side simply for insisting upon liberty of conscience and, an idea, and idea particularly dear to Williams. The... Uh, Let's see. The peace between the Rhode Island settlers and the Indians was so remarkable for several decades that the neighboring colonies began to fear for their friendship as an alliance, and for almost 100 years after the original founding of Providence, the other colonies sought to uproot the settlement altogether. They obviously did not succeed. However, war did rise in 1675 to 76 between Massasoit's son Metacomet, dubbed King Philip by the British and the Massachusetts and Connecticut colonies, Eventually, the Narragansett joins the Wampanoags in not only attacking the Massachusetts Bay cities, but even burning Providence itself, though they took care to warn the settlers first so there was no loss of life. Sadly, the efforts made by Roger Williams could not forge a lasting bond as King Philip was naturally distrustful of the European settlers, foreseeing that what the English had once traded for in a time of need, when stronger and greater in numbers, they would eventually take by force. It turned out King Philip was right. And so let's see. So that is uh, basically how Rhode Island came to be. Again, it's very interesting that he respected the natives so much. Yes, yes. Well, a lot of them did. I mean, I know. even in, in Massachusetts, um, in some of the towns where I grew up, as I said, I grew up in the the part of Massachusetts that was mostly, you know, wilderness at that time. And, uh, you know, they, they, the Stockbridge Indians were, uh, were welcomed. Um, the Stockbridge Indians and, uh, oh, the Massachusetts Indians. And you know, and these these uh, Indians did their their initial colonists. You know, they they weren't that many, and they didn't infringe, and they traded with each other. You know, as long as you didn't, you know, upset somebody, you were fine. Okay, so we are going to talk about Mary Catherine's mother because. She was the one who taught Mary Catherine everything she knows about printing, and she was the one that took over the business when her husband died. So we have to definitely include her because this is kind of a mother-daughter story. And as we get into Mary Catherine, you'll see what I mean by that. So let's talk about her mother, and this is from RhodeIslandHeritageHallOfFame.org. There are certain ingredients necessary for the recipe of an independent, self-governing commonwealth. I'm going to look up the definition of commonwealth because 
there's still some states that call themselves a commonwealth, and I want to know the difference. <laughs> live in one. Huh? I live in one. I've lived in two. Massachusetts is a commonwealth, and Virginia is a commonwealth. Right, exactly. And when, when Brian used to do a show with um, the Halls of Valhalla with uh, another gentleman, he lived in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Yeah. Oh. Anyway, uh, a thriving economy always helps. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we know that. Strong, mm-hmm. healthy community institutions like religious congregations, schools and colleges, and economic engines like banks and insurance societies really help. But a vital key to unlocking the participation of the public is the role of the press. This is extremely important. It's called propaganda. Now, we had it back in colonial days during the Revolutionary War, and Yankee Mom will get into more of that in a little while. But the propaganda we're having here is beyond the pale that we have right now because it's not just propaganda. It's misinformation. And it's funny that we are doing Rhode Island because I was just listening to Mark Levin before we came on the show, and he actually had a caller call from Rhode Island mm. and said he was vying to be a delegate, of, uh, one of the delegates for the election for Rhode Island. And I said, oh, we're going to do Rhode Island. <laughs> but the press is important because it changes the hearts and minds of, of men and women by using propaganda. But when you start integrating misinformation into it, that's when it gets really dangerous. Don't you agree? Yes, yes. That's, that's, uh, it, it, well, yes. And, well, as long, you know, as long as they're up front about it, it's like um, today with uh, all the news channels on TV that are really, opi- you know, editorial or opinion shows, there's little news on the TV anymore. It's, um, you know, they call it analysis, but it's really opinion. Yes. Yes, I agree. So anyway, this is why I'm excited to do a lovely lady. And yes, guess what? She's a businesswoman, like I said earlier, but she owns newspapers. Yeah. It was possible. Feminazis. Anyway... The press circulates ideas. Just as the banks circulate money, the press circulates ideas. Ideas are the currency of the mind. By the middle decades of the 18th century, there was a lot of ideas in Rhode Island relating to trade and government. Rhode Island's relationship to England raised questions of home rule, but these were also questions as to who would rule at home. For nearly half a century, political leadership and power had centered in Newport around a clique of powerful merchants and their offspring who had migrated to South County where South County, where they elected representatives in league with the island towns of, uh, how do you say this, Aquidneck? 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 I, I'm not sure. Okay. It's, I'm just going to say Aquidneck. And Conicut, which is Jamestown. Under the leadership of Stephen Hopkins and the Browns, Providence began to challenge the Dominion of Newport and its ideas on how to run Rhode Island. Central to their efforts to persuade the freemen of Rhode Island, the male property owners who were eligible to make decisions in the town meetings, was the creation of a Providence newspaper. Interestingly enough, their ally was someone who could not vote because she was a woman in Rhode Island, Sarah Opdyke Goddard. Now, 
women-owned property. Most, and it went state by state, ladies and gentlemen. It, the the uh, right to vote was a colony right. They made up the rules. And in certain states, if a woman owned property, she was allowed to vote. Blacks as well. But in other states, they were not. And it was a state issue. It was a colony issue. So the notion that women never got to vote is ludicrous. As a matter of fact, in my state of Montana, when it was a territory, they allowed women to vote. And we actually had here in Montana the first state woman state representative that was voted in in the country. Our state did that, but, but it was a territory at the time. But it was their decision. And women were allowed to vote here in Montana because a lot of the men who came out here and, made, and you know, got large tracts of land to have ranches, they died and it went to their, you know, their, their um, wife. And then if they, did, if they didn't have a son, it went to the daughter. So they had the right to vote in Montana. And, again, it was a state-by-state, colony-by-colony decision. So in Rhode Island, she was not allowed to vote. In 1730, uh, Sarah Updike was born to wealth at, oh my good Lord, I'm not going to be able to say this, Kolkusmukhsmukhsmukhsmukhsmukhsmukhsmukhsmukhsmukhsmukhsmukhsmukhsmukhsmukhsmukhsmukhsmukhsmukhsmukhsmukhsmukhsmukhsmukhsmukh
Oh, it does say she died in 1816. Oh, okay. I didn't get to that yet. Um, her children also excelled in the fields of journalism and printing. Her son, William, became editor to the large and prominent Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania Chronicle and the Maryland Journal. Daughter Mary Catherine, yes, she died in 1816, was a noted newspaper publisher, printer, bookseller, and postmaster in Pennsylvania and Maryland. Again, why we don't have that much on her, I don't know, but I'll, I'll look something up while I'm here. All right, so that's her mother. And let's see, that was her mother. Now, Mary Catherine. A newspaper publisher and postmaster of Baltimore, Maryland, Mary Catherine Goddard is famous for printing of the first copy of the Declaration of Independence that included the signer's name. I brought this up to my husband, Brian, because he's a constitutional scholar, and uh, they, he did with two other uh, gentlemen, PatriotsPub.us. If you go there, they did the Continental Convention day by day in the founder's words. And I said to him, did you know that the first draft of the, the Declaration of Independence only had John Han Hancock's name on it? And he said, no, but that makes sense. Because they wanted it to be approved first, and then the final draft they all signed. But I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Okay, she was born in 1738 in southern New England. Her exact birthplace is unknown. Like her brother, William, her younger brother, William, she was educated by their mother, Sarah Updike Goddard, who taught them Latin, French, and the literary classics. So, yes, ladies and gentlemen, women could read and write and um, do arithmetic. The family was living in New London, Connecticut, when Giles Goddard died in 1757, leaving a fairly valuable estate. When William came of age, they moved to Providence, Rhode Island, where Sarah Goddard let her son the money to begin a printing business, the first in that colony. This was in 1762 when Mary Catherine was age 24. See, so she didn't get married, Yankee mom. Oh, apparently she did not. No. Although the younger William was often patiently in charge, he traveled a great deal, and it was Sarah Updike Goddard who was the true publisher of the Providence Gazette, and Country Journal. Mary Catherine took a great interest in the business and forewent many of the usual activities for young ladies to work as a typesetter, printer, and journalist. The mother-daughter team made their, their print shop a hub of activity at a time when newspapers exerted great political influence. They added a book bindery and, in addition to the Gazette, printed almanacs, pamphlets, and occasionally books. That's what I need. I need a book binder. I, I am notorious. It drives my husband crazy. I am notorious for destroying book binding. I don't know how I do it, but I, I do. I, I, I still don't. Good. I really don't know how I do it. Huh? I have a very good friend who does that. <laughs> I, I, am just, I am bad. So I'm trying to be a little bit better, but, oh, God, we have at least four books that need binding done. Well, let me know, because he's wonderful at it. William left for Philadelphia in 1765, where he began another print shop and newspaper, again with the financial assistance from his mother. The women joined him there in 1768 and helped run the Philadelphia Chronicle and Universal Advertiser. After Sarah Goddard's 
1770 death, Mary Catherine kept the business running, as William was frequently jailed for public outbursts and rabble-rousing articles in the paper. His sister's contrasting business ability is clear in that, according to William Goddard's biographer, William L. Minor, quote, the shop became one of the largest in the colonies, unquote. Okay, so not only was she a businesswoman, she was a successful businesswoman. Again, however, William departed. In May 1773, he started a paper in Baltimore, while Mary Catherine ran the Philadelphia business until the following February, when the Philadelphia Chronicle was discontinued. Moving to Baltimore, she once more took over her younger brother's newspaper. While according to one historian, the historian Minor, William busied himself in setting up an intercolonial postal system in opposition to the official British one. And we're going to get into that. I found that fascinating. And when we get to it, you're going to find out why it's so important to be put in to the Constitution. And in order, you know, everyone says the post office should be closed down. I agree. But unfortunately, we have to have an amendment to the Constitution to do so. Just like we have to have for everything else, which we, we don't. <laughs> they just make laws without amending the Constitution, which is all the laws that they make are null and void as far as I'm concerned. All right. And they are, because they're, they're not, they're not uh, part of the Constitution. They didn't amend the Constitution. And um, I wish these uh, governors would uh, get their heads out of their backsides and stand up, because they're more powerful than the rest of the legislature uh, in that federal bipartisan that we have up there, and especially the president. Um, okay. Do, 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 do. With her mother dead and her brother prioritizing his political inclinations, Mary Catherine Goddard finally assumed the title of publisher of the Maryland Journal in Baltimore and the Baltimore Advisor. She put published by M.K. Goddard on the masthead on May 10, 1775, and remained there even when William returned from his New Hampshire to Georgia travels in 1776. Now, uh, the year 1775 brought a second milestone as Goddard became the first female postmaster in colonial America. I'm going to stop right there because I would like to get into... And you did Rhode Island. Um, I did that and that. Okay. Now, well, I'm going to stop there because I want Yankee Mom to discuss early printing because she's already discussed Providence. Uh, no, then, she'll, then I want her to get into the, the, the newspapers that they first founded. So she is going to highlight early printing in colonial America. Okay. And this is from the book History and Present Condition of the Newspaper and Periodical Press of, and they just cut that off. No, wait a minute. I want you to see the, oh, dear. Well, anyways, it's uh, um, an older book, as usual, and hopefully I can get the name, the, the complete name for you, for you in a minute here. But it says, in, um, the founders of the colony of Massachusetts arrived at Salem in 1628, and in January 1639, the first printing was done in what is now the United States. Previous to the establishment of this first press at Cambridge, a number of manuscripts originating in the colonies had been sent to England for publication, and there is evidence that this practice continued for some 80 years afterward. 
Moses Coit Tyler makes the first book written in America, Captain John Smith's true relation of such occurrences as might have happened in Virginia. (laughs) I love the titles that they had back then. Um, which was composed in 1607 and published in London the following year. The second book, written in the colonies, was Smith's letter to the English proprietors, and the third, his map of the bay and the rivers, which was not printed until 1612 at Oxford. In 1610, Sir Thomas Gates wrote a true repository of the rack and redemption of Sir Thomas Gates, which he sent to England to be printed. George Sandus, also of Virginia, wrote a translation of Ovid, which was sent to London for publication in 1626. There are records of a number of other volumes, chiefly of a religious character, which were written in this country and sent to England for publication prior to the establishment of the first press at Cambridge in 1639. Thomas says in his History of Printing in America that from a variety of causes it happened that many original works were sent from New England, Massachusetts in particular, to London to be printed. Among these causes, the principal were the press at Cambridge had generally full employment, the the printing was done there was executed in an inferior style, and many works on controverted points of religion were not allowed to be printed in this country. As a matter of fact, up to this period and for a long time after, there was almost no demand for printed matter in the colonies, and very few London publications of any character were sold in this country. The first regular bookseller of whom there is any account was Hezekiah Usher, who is not known to have been in business earlier than 1652. The British books that found their way to the colonies were generally kept in shops with other wares. Benedict Arnold sold drugs and books. Later in the development of the colonies, the occupation of printer, bookbinder, and bookseller were generally combined in one. Although there was considerable culture and learning among the earlier, early settlers of Virginia, and several of them were book writers, as we have seen, the feasibility of doing their own printing does not appear to have occurred to anyone in the colony until 1681, 24 years after the first settlement was ma- 74 years after the first settlement was made. Some explanation of the delay clearly lies in the celebrated declaration of Sir William Berkeley, governor of the colony, in his answer to the inquiries of the Lords of the Committee for the Colonies in 1671. He says, I thank God we have not free schools nor printing, and I hope we shall not have these hundred years, for learning has brought disobedience and heresy and sex, sex, S-E-C-T-S, into the world, and printing has divulged them in libels against the government. God keep us from both. The pious protest of the governor against free schools and printing nearly 40 years after the founding of Harvard University and the establishment of the first printing press in the younger colony of Massachusetts has been held to illustrate the difference between the cavalier civilization of Virginia and the Puritan civilization of New England. When the first printing press was introduced into Virginia in 1681, its adventuresome proprietor, one John Buckner, was promptly called before the governor and council and order to, ordered to enter into uh, bond not to print anything hereafter until his majesty's pleasure shall be known. God, does this sound familiar? This was an actual suppression of the press and thus differed materially from the regulation of it by the appointment of licensiers 
which had in the meanwhile been sanctioned by law in Massachusetts, but it was simply the carrying out of royal instructions and therefore not a test of Virginia civilization. The licensing of printing was still in vogue in the mother country, nor was it formally abandoned there until 1694 on the accession of William and Mary. It continued even after the revolution of 1688 to be assumed by the crown as one of the rights of the prerogative in all the American colonies as claimed and exercised under the Stuarts. The royal governors under... uh, the royal governors of the American colonies under William and Mary were vested with a censorship over the press. The instructions to these governors read, read as follows, as quoted from the commission of a New York governor. And for as much as great inconvenience may arise by the liberty of printing within, within our province of New York, you are to provide by all necessary orders that no person keeping any press for printing, nor that any book, pamphlet, or other matters whatsoever be printed without your especial leave and license first obtained. Mr. Bancroft insists that in spite of these instructions, the press generally was as free in America as any part of the world. To accept this view, we must be convinced that the imposition of a license does not work a greater comparative repression in a country crude and unsettled, without expert mechanics and with few ambitions of the printer's honors where the art of printing has not yet obtained a footing, than in countries where, under even severer discipline, it had yet made steady headway for more than a century. At the same time, it is to be born in... Uh, mind that the press sprang up in several of these colonies while these instructions were yet nominally enforced in impractical defiance of them. Yet, as long as the British authority remained unchallenged, there was continual interference with the press on the part of the government, and notably in the three colonies of Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, and New York, where it had taken hardiest root. No single event in the colonial annals of the continent attracted more general attention both in America and England than the trial of John Peter Zenger, publisher of the New York Gazette in 1735, 30 years later than the establishment of the first American newspaper, for the publication of false, scandalous, malicious, seditious libels against the royal government of the colony of New York, a trial in which the government persisted by information after the grand jury had refused to indict, a trial in which all the authority of the crown, all the weight of the court, and all the power of the English common law of libel failed to coerce a verdict of guilty from the jury. (laughs) Yay! The trial of Zanger was the first real struggle of the colonial press for freedom of speech against the government and laid the deep and broad foundation of the liberty of the press in America. Now, this brings up so much, Yankee Mom. Uh-huh. I mean, look at how much, this is what the press was supposed to be. It's supposed to be for we the people against this tyrannical government. And now the press is in bed with a tyrannical government. Yeah. The other thing is look at how important a jury was. Mm-hmm. And that is why they have all that, that uh, trial by jury in the Constitution and if that if you get tried for treason, it doesn't go into your family because this is what the monarchs were doing, not just in England but all across Europe. They would they would stop they would literally stop people from having property because if you were tried for anything, it would go if that 
that sentence would follow, your family would follow, how, I can't put this right, that sentence would follow your family through generations. Mm-hmm. So the family fathers got rid of that. They also got, made sure that we could have trial by jury. And we had freedom of the press. That's what the First Amendment was about. Because that look at how look at how how persecuted everybody was, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and you know, well, kings are kings and um, queens are queens, and you daren't say. I mean, God, you you weren't even supposed to lift your eyes from the floor unless told to do so, and you never backed out of the room. You never turned your back on the monarch. You know, you you backed out of the room. You didn't turn around and just walk out. Um, you you never showed your back to the king or queen. Which you know, you know and that's, go ahead. it's something that we those of us who are older than forty can't even imagine. Um, you know, I mean that's why all this stuff about the king and or the the queen of England and all that and all the queens and the kings that are out there. I mean, they mean nothing to us. They're not God's gift to humanity. You know, um, it's like... Well, that goes, that, goes with our, that goes with all like the cockroaches, too. Yes, yes. I mean, look, there was, um, I think I was listening, and I do want this, it really does go into historical context. We fought a brutal, vicious civil war so that we could tell our elected officials what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. Not the other way around, yep. where we are now. Oh, and it's just unelected, unelected officials. We didn't even elect them. They're telling us what to do. Yes, like the, the bureaucrats and the, under the EPA and all that. Exactly. And they're telling us what to do. We, back then, we were like, no. No, we're going to tell you what to do. The government is for us, ladies and gentlemen. And if you ever be any, go anywhere and talk to any of your elected cockroaches, you tell them what to freaking do. They yes. don't get to tell you. And I don't care if you're disrespectful for them. They have to earn their, our, our respect. Yeah, we. well, I always look at it as I'm your employer, basically. I voted you in. You know, I voted for you to represent me. Now, you have spokespeople like in business. You have your representatives in business. They are out to represent the business, not what they think the business should be doing, but what the business does. If you have a spokesman, um, you, you, that person is a neutral entity who is speaking your words and doing what you want them to do. And that's an elected representative, which is why we're the representative republic of the United States. We are not a democracy. We are not a socialist uh, government. We are not an oligarchy. We are a representative republic. And that is what we fought for. Many died. Okay, so basically, it goes on. It's it's not good. This was not good. This this really this is why reading history 
is so important. I mean, not much has changed, and we're still fighting the same stuff, you know, because people are people, and we haven't reached you. Yeah, but this this is different. It's dangerous because we have had our history twisted, and most people are not educated. Well, that's it. That's it. Well, they wouldn't dare um, teach, you know. I mean, Bolsheviks aren't going to teach, uh, you know, history where it ends up in liberty because they don't believe in liberty. Um, let's see. Okay. All right. So, and the trial of Zanger was the first real struggle of the colonial press of freedom against the government and laid the deep and Okay. But it was 20 years later, January 25th, 1755, that the Reverend William Smith, first and last provost of the College of Pennsylvania, was arrested by order of the Pennsylvania Assembly and sent to jail, where he remained six months, for translating and publishing in one of German newspapers a pamphlet reflecting on the government. It was in 1771 that Thomas was annoyed by the Massachusetts governor and council, very much as Zanger had been in New York, except that he was not imprisoned, and the attempt to proceed against him by information was abandoned on the account of popular opposition. And in 1769, General Alexander McDougall of New York reputed to be the author of a pamphlet privately printed, which the assembly of that colony resolved to be a false, seditious, and infamous libel on the government, was arrested, imprisoned from December to April, when the grand jury found an indictment against him and was finally brought before the assembly and required to answer whether he was guilty or not. McDougall refused to answer on the ground that he was under indictment for the alleged offense and was entitled to an unprejudiced trial before a jury of his peers. He was finally adjudged guilty of a breach of the privileges of the House and committed again to prison where he remained several months. The annals of the colonies are full of somewhat similar instances of the severity with which the authorities of this country, in imitation of those of Great Britain, dealt with the printers and those who participated in political discussion through the instrumentality of the newspaper or printed page. And uh, and it goes into the the uh, Stamp Act, and it says the only direct legislation of Great Britain against the colonial press was the Stamp Act of 1765, aimed quite as much against other pursuits as against printing, but more direct in its influence upon the newspaper press than upon any other colonial enterprise. A considerable number of the newspapers, particularly in the South, were driven to suspend publication until the Stamp Act was repealed. More opulent but equally cautious publishers, when the act was to take effect, dressed their journals in mourning and for a few weeks omitted to publish them. Others less cautious but apprehensive of the consequences of publishing newspapers without stamps omitted the titles altogether or altered them as an, inva- an, as an evasion. Those publishers who continued to print without reference to the stamp took a risk which proved how thoroughly imbued they were with the spirit out of which grew the revolution. The Stamp Act was but a temporary check to newspaper growth, but it must be regarded as the manifestation of a spirit which these early printers knew to be ever-present, the spirit to coerce the press into more circumspect... I'm sorry, I I, I just... My tongue-tied tonight... 
into more circumspect allusion to the causes of friction between the colonies and the mother country. The colonial governments in the colonies of Massachusetts and New York also resorted to stamp acts as a means of, of raising revenue. Such an act was passed in Massachusetts in 1755 and a similar act by the Assembly of New York in 1756, which was continued until January 1760. During this period, the newspapers then published in that colony sometimes appeared with stamps and sometimes without them. These acts were plainly modeled upon the English parliamentary law, which then bore no, so heavily upon the press of the mother country. The fact that there were but two and that they lasted so short a time may be accepted as the evidence that the American colonists early recognized the press as an instrument of popular education and civilization, which was entitled to exemption from the burden of taxation. It is worthy of remark that since the revolution, only two American states have attempted a direct tax upon the products of the press. In 1785, the legislature of Massachusetts passed an act imposing duties upon licensed vellum, parchment, and paper, and laid a duty of two-thirds of a penny upon newspapers and a penny upon almanacs, which were to be stamped. This act became at once so odious that it was repealed before it went into effect. But in the July following, another act was passed which imposed a duty on all advertisements inserted in the newspapers of the Commonwealth. This latter enactment was denounced by Isaiah Thomas, then publisher of the Worcester, Worcester Spy, and by many of his contemporaries as placing an improper restraint upon the press. And in consequence of it, he discontinued the publication of the spy during the two years in which it was in operation. One of those sources of revenue in the state of Virginia was as recent as 1848 was a tax on newspapers, the revenue from which in that year accounted to $355. Um, so that is, that is the beginning and what they went through prior to the war. Many, many newspapers shut down during the war because uh, the printers went off to the war or they fled to England or Canada. Right. That makes sense. Yes. But look at, how, look at how important, number one, the press was, and Britain knew this. And they knew they couldn't, they were trying so hard to control them. Yes, yes. Um, and and it, it, in the early colonial period, it was the pamphlet that was uh, very, you know, the most popular uh, source. And, and as said before, it was mainly religious. Um, and then they turned the pamphlet, the, the Sons of Liberty, turned the pamphlet into, uh, well, basically propaganda. <laughs> yeah. It caused. And the loyalists were on the other side printing their pamphlets of propaganda against the patriots. So, I mean, there were loyalist papers and there were patriot papers. And well, and Mary Catherine, as a woman, and his, her mother were on the patriot side. They were printing their newspapers for the patriots. Mm-hmm. Women. Yes, yes, yes. Um, let's see. Uh, there's Oh, this this looks... I, I would love to read this whole book to you, but... Um, Do you have anything on the uh, newspapers that they published? Yes. Hold on. I have to get to that. Okay. So now we have... 
I have to, it's a PDF, I have to open it here, hold on. Open, open, open. Okay, and now I have to uh, make it bigger so I can... Well, you know, and going back to this, it's amazing that they've published newspapers in multiple colonies. So women were allowed to own businesses in at least Maryland, Philadelphia, and Rhode Island. Yeah, yeah. Because even though it was under her brother's name, they were still running the business. And it was an acceptable practice. Otherwise, they would have been shunned. Yes. Okay, so here, from 17 September 1787, the day the Constitutional Convention promulgated the Constitution, to 29 May 1790, the day the Rhode Island Convention ratified the Constitution, four weekly newspapers were published in Rhode Island. Two each in the Federalist strongholds of Newport and Providence. The Newport Herald and the Providence United States Chronicle were printed on Thursdays, and the Providence Gazette appeared on Saturdays. Complete runs for this period are available. Okay, only about 60% of the issues of the Mercury Extant. Yeah, there. Are, I, I looked at. I have. I found the the original copies of the Providence Gazette, and there's a lot of missing ones. But there's some. You know, they they all through the war there aren't any editions, unfortunately. The Providence Gazette and the Newport Herald, in particular, supported the Constitution. The United States Chronicle was apparently neutral, devoting roughly an equal amount of space to essays supporting and criticizing the Constitution. The types of items generally published in extant issues of the Newport Mercury makes it impossible to determine conclusively if the paper had a political bias. All four Rhode Island newspapers printed a variety of items on the Constitution. They published essays written by Rhode Islanders, either unsigned or signed with a pseudonym. They were extracts of letters from writers identified only by their locations, occasional editorial comments, and poems. More common were observations of unidentified correspondence and news reports. Newspapers reported on legislative and state convention proceedings, town meetings, and celebrations. The mix of items printed varied by newspaper. The four newspapers also reprinted items that originated in the other states. The variety of -of out-of-state items was similar to the Rhode Island material, and again, the mix of reprinted material on the Constitution varied. Uh, Some items were printed or reprinted at the request of the newspaper's reading. The Providence Gazette and Country Journal was established in 1762 by William Goddard, and for a time it was operated by his mother. In September 1767, Sarah Goddard took on as a partner John Carter, a native of Philadelphia who had apprenticed with Philadelphia printers Benjamin Franklin and David Hall. Carter became sole owner of the Providence Gazette in 1768, printing his first issue on the 12th of November. He was a firm supporter of the Patriot cause during the revolutionary movement against Great Britain. An active job printer, he also published numerous broad-sized pamphlets and books, including Rhode Island laws and statutes. Carter published his newspapers on Saturdays. He was also the postmaster of Providence from 72 to 92. Um, Let's see. It goes on about that. You notice it doesn't mention Mary Catherine. I noticed this when I was reading about it. John Carter bought it, so it was all his. (laughs) And that's how it was. Um, 
let's see. Okay. Yeah, it, it goes on that Bennett Wheeler came in um, 1776. Of course, I think Mary Catherine was in Maryland by now. She was in Baltimore. Um, so, and I was trying to find her, her the paper, the Philadelphia Chronicle, but I haven't been able to um, to see if there's any uh, any newspapers like um, I found on uh, on um, you know the Providence Chronicle. I have been having a hard time with that. Let's see if it says anything here. Let me see. There's the Connecticut one, the New York one. Hold on. I might be getting there. La, 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 la. First period, Rhode Island. Okay, there we go, the newspaper. Okay, that's... Um, da, 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 da. Okay, all right. Well, let's just talk about um, the influence of the Revolutionary War upon the press because this will probably get into some of it. Such was the condition and characteristics of the colonial press at the time of the outbreak. Oh, I have to probably, let's see, the Boston was full. Okay. It had not been able to reach the position of a recognized force in politics and in society. It had done good service for the patriot cause, but had still been only a secondary element in the tide that was sweeping the colonies toward independence. Its usefulness were circumscribed by a variety of causes, one of which, at least, the revolution did more than ought else to wholly remove with I'm sorry this book's type is, is is difficult to read with the outbreak of hostilities all attempts of the government to regulate and control the public press came to an end and in all the colonies the breaking loose from the control of England seems to have been accepted as carrying with it the abrogation of the laws and customs inherited from the mother country which involved anything like a censorship of the press or a government control of its utterances as colony after colony organized state governments and adopted constitutions for self-government, the freedom of the press under the restrictions will, which still obtain for the regulation of its utterances in reference to individuals was recognized as a cardinal point in free institutions. The influence of the revolution in producing the liberty of the American press, as we understand the meaning of that phrase, has not been generally recognized and can only be fully appreciated by a consideration of the restrictions which surround its utterances under the colonial system and the complete independence of governmental control which has ever since been its birthright. In Great Britain, it was many years afterward before this principle was recognized as a fundamental one. When the Constitution of the United States was framed, there was no provision included in it regarding the freedom of the press. The General Convention, having left this subject to the common understanding and established opinion of the people, it is true that Charles Pinckney of South Carolina on May 29, 1787, laid before the convention and draft of a plan of federal government which he had prepared and which, he, which was included a provision declaring that the legislature of the United States shall pass no law touching or abridging the liberty of the press. And that on August 20th of the same year, Mr. Pinckney submitted to the convention for reference to the Committee of Detail a series of propositions in which was included the declaration that the liberty of the press shall be inviolably preserved. 
Neither of these propositions having been incorporated in the Constitution, the first Congress, by way of amendment to the Constitution, resolved that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of, of grievances. So, um, that, I mean, see, this is, this is the thing. We, we have lived, um, I mean, America has been free, very free, uh, you know, freer than almost any other, well, our freedom's been being chipped away for the past 50 years. But, uh, you know, we've always been number one. You know, we were the beacon on the hill, the light on the hill, whatever. And now we have a whole echelon of people in our government, in our churches, in our state governments, in our academia, academia, universities and schools, all the way to preschool, that have no idea what it is to live under tyranny that they can blithely applaud, enthusiastically applaud when Obama comes out and says by presidential memo or executive action or whatever they call it, I'm going to tell you, you can't do this anymore. You know, and make it so, number one. They have no idea what it is to sit in a small apartment because it's the only one that's available and that you can afford and turn the radio on or write to each other because you don't know if the government has bugged your apartment because they know that you have written and said things against the government. And you don't know that if you tell your friend something, that he isn't going to go to the authorities and you'll be disappeared. And these are stories I've gotten from actual people, one from South Africa, one from Russia. There was a reason Alexander Solzhenitsyn came to Vermont. And it just fries me that we we have a whole, well, several generations of people who don't understand that. So, let's see. All right, well, yeah. Well, hopefully we are getting more and more of this message out and they will start listening to us and to other people that are screaming from the heavens before it turns into a bloody revolution. All right. So I am going, since we stopped at 1775, I'm going to uh, read a little bit about what was going on in Rhode Island in 1775. Even though she's not there at this point, well, she still is. Let me see. Let me go back. 
Okay. Yeah, I, well, I'm going to still look up to find the Philadelphia Gazette. I am not getting a uh, um, chronicle, I mean, because that's where she went to eventually. Okay. So, what was happening in Rhode Island? On Thursday, this is Providence, Rhode Island, March 4th, 1775. And it's from that uh, Molly's rhodeisland.blogspot.com. On Thursday last, the second instant, about 12 o'clock at noon, the town crier gave the following notice through the town. At 5 o'clock this afternoon, a quantity of India tea will be burnt in the marketplace. All true friends of their country, lovers of freedom, and haters of shackles and handcuffs are hereby invited to testify their good disposition by bringing in and casting into the fire a needless herb, which for a long time has been determined to our liberty, interest, and health. About 5 o'clock in the afternoon, a great number of inhabitants assembled at the place where there was brought in about 300 pounds weight of tea by the firm contenders for the true interests of America. A large fire was kindled and the tea cast into it. A tar barrel, Lord North's speech, Rivington's and Mills and Hicks newspapers, and divers other ingredients were also added. They're, talk, they're, gonna, they're putting in, you know, uh, uh, newspapers that were for the British and this Lord North, his speech, because he was talking about the British and for the British, and that's why they, they burnt them all together in effigy. There appeared great cheerfulness in committing to destruction so per, pernicious an article. Many were worthy women from a conviction of the evil tendency of continuing the habit of tea drinking made the free will offerings of their respective stocks of the hurtful trash. On this, this occasion, the bells were tolled, but it is referred to the learned whether tolling or ringing would have been most proper. While the tea was burning, a spirited son of liberty went along the street with his brush and lamp black and obliterated or unpainted the word T on the shop sign. Notice the strong language. Notice the strong language that the town criers recorded to have used in summoning the separatist patriots to the TBQ. All true friends of their country, lovers of freedom, and haters of shackles and handcuffs. According to the zealous libertarian, if one was a hater of shackles and handcuffs, uh, then it follows that he also acknowledged Indian tea available only through the British East Indian Trading Company and taxed accordingly to be not only needless but also for a long time detrimental to our liberty, interest, and health. Who knew that participating in the English tradition of afternoon tea was equivalent to Toryism? But so it was, according to the article's author, who mentions that a number of women who participated in Providence's own tea party are but recent converts from the evil tendency of tea drinking. Luckily, these misled women soon repented their despicable tea-drinking ways and alongside with the ever-vigilant Sons of Liberty, freely discarded and burned the hurtful trash. Although Rhode Island's tea riot took place almost 15 months after the famous Boston Tea Party, there had been multiple other demonstrations in the colony to clarify their feelings toward the crown. And now, if you think about it, when Mary Catherine and her mother Sarah were in Rhode Island, this was post this was uh, pre all of this, but because of the writings in their in the chronicle and the papers that they published, they were spurring this on because it said that they were patriots, and it was before 
any of this happened, which we always talk about that, you know, the revolution took a long time to take place. But they were also spurring it on with their papers. Um, let's see. Uh, there had been multiple other demonstrations in the colony to clarify their feelings toward the crown. Newport, still a prosperous seafaring and merchant town be before the war, became especially famous as a hub for dissenters. One of the first revolts against British customs took place there. The HMS Liberty, originally owned by John Hancock, but confiscated by the British and re-ousted as, as a customs boat, was particularly hated, given its history and current use. On July 19, 1769, angry Rhode Islanders burned the ship in an act of open defiance. Several other ships were likewise pillaged and burned in the years leading up to the war, and soon Newport gained such a reputation as hostile to loyalists that the English colonel, Gilbert, wrote a letter of warning to James Wallace, commander of a British ship, Rose, docked at Newport, that when their men were gathered on the land, they should expect to be attacked by thousands of rebels. Of course, Rhode Island has reasons that extended beyond that heartfelt patriotism and independence for which the tiniest of colonies is famous. In his renewed title, The Revolutionary Experience of Newport in New York, Fred Anderson points out that ironic schisms which occurred in the historical port city during the war. Newport, wildly successful, leader of the international triangle trade and involved in other and other other-the-table trade ventures, that means under the table, was also a key point port for the duration of the revolution. From being the city from which the first rebel attack against British ships were launched in 1772 to 78, 1780, when it became the first base for French relief soldiers to dock and disembark, Newport was crucial to the success of the American forces. Now, Yankee Mom, I had no clue about this. Did you? No. I mean, this, is, this was an extremely important port, and it has, Rhode Island and Newport is never mentioned anywhere. There's never been any movies made about it. There's never been any documentaries about it. Look at how important this port was and this, this area was. Yes. I mean, and no one talks about it. Um, well, let me see. There we go. Uh, da, 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 da. However, by the time victory was achieved, Newport's accumulative losses in trade companies' profits, especially Hanford beginning in 1764, see, it, wasn't only, it wasn't only representation of taxation without representation. It also had to do with trade. And, um, and our, the United States continuing to have its own livelihood. Um, let's see. Combined with the usual cost of war, had taken such a toll on the once golden city that a, hunt, that a 1782 visitor described the following scene. A reign of solitude only interrupted by groups of idle men standing with folded arms at the corners of the street, houses falling to ruin, miserable shops, grass growing in the public squares, rags stuffed in the windows. As it turned out, this rags to ruin phenomenon was one from which Anderson says Newport never recovered. And while the shambles were repaired enough to return the place to a properly functioning city, it would never regain its antebellum high social status. The gilding was gone for good. Mm -hmm. So that was Rhode Island during the Revolutionary War. Some of it. Now, 
I am. Are you going to go to 1776 Rhode Island? Yeah. I was just looking up uh, um, the uh, it. One place calls it the Philadelphia Chronicle, and the other one calls it the Pennsylvania Chronicle. I'm I'm not I'm confused. Maybe that's why I haven't been able to find it. Okay. Fine. But anyways, let's see. Here we go. I have more windows open. A glass house. I don't want to join. I just want to read. Thank you. Okay, this is from the New England Historical Society.com website. And it's May 4, 1776, Rhode Island Independence Day. This is very interesting. I didn't know this either. Um, and I should have. <laughs> well, being a New Englander. But anyway. Rhode Island independence was declared two months before the other 12 colonies got around to formally breaking ties with King George III. On May 4, 1776, the General Assembly of the Colony of Rhode Island declared its absolute independence from Great Britain in a nearly unanimous vote. Rhode Island was thus the first independent sovereign state in the Western world. The colony was drawing on its traditional tradition of radical religious dissent, as well as protecting its commercial interests. Newport and Providence were prosperous centers of transatlantic trade and havens for pirates and smugglers. Merchants chafed at Britain's attempts to tighten control over all commercial shipping in the Narragansett Bay. Rhode Island was heavily involved in the triangle trade, selling rum to Africa in exchange for slaves and selling slaves to West Indian sugar plantations in exchange for molasses with which rum was made. The Sugar Act of 1764 raised the tariff on molasses, which provoked Rhode Islanders into attacking the customs ship HMS St. John that year. In 1769, Rhode Islander burned another customs ship, HMS Liberty, in Newport Harbor. In 1772, the British customs ship HMS Gatsby was ground near Warwick. Abraham Whipple and John Brown led the Sons of Liberty in attacking, looting, boarding, and burning the ship. The Royal Commission of Inquiry charged the men with treason, and the prospect of Americans being sent to England for trial sent an alarm through the colonies. Ultimately, the commission dropped the matter. Fast forward to 1776, when Rhode Island was in the thick of the American Revolution. The colony's long coastline was not well protected from British naval forces, which harassed the islands and mainland and eventually occupied Newport. On May 4, 1776, the General Assembly met in Providence to perform the last official act in colonial Rhode Island. Jonathan Arnold drew up the bill that repealed an act of allegiance to the king. It enacted an oath of allegiance to the state and decreed that all court proceedings should be performed in the name of the state, not of the king. God save the king was replaced with the phrase, God save the United Colonies. The General Assembly also gave instructions to William Ellery, Ellery and Stephen Hawkins, Rhode Island representatives, to the Continental Congress meeting in Philadelphia. Two days later, Governor Nicholas Cook wrote a letter to General George Washington saying, I also enclose a copy of an act discharging the inhabitants of this colony from allegiance to the great king of Great Britain, which was carried in the House of Deputies after a debate with but six dissentient voices there being upwards of 60 members present. 
On July 4, 1776, in Philadelphia, Stephen Hopkins picked up a pen and supported his shaking right hand with his left as he signed the Declaration of Independence. The Rhode Islander famously remarked, My hand trembles, but my heart does not. I love that. Okay. Hmm. Well, people have to realize that they were committing treason. Yes. I mean, this was not, this was, this was a very big deal. It was. I mean, they were, you know, just placing the rope around their neck. Exactly. Okay, so, uh, Rhode Island. Okay, so I'm going to continue with Mary. Uh, let's see. The year 1775 brought a second milestone as Mary became the first female postmaster in, in colonial America. Being both postmistress and a newspaper printer made her the center of information exchange. Her dual position often enabled her to publish news more quickly than her competitors. For example, the journal was one of the first newspapers to report the skirmishes at Lexington and Concord that prompted the revolution. I still have no idea why we have no more information on her. I mean, she's pretty much famous. Mm -hmm. uh, you know? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I am going to talk about, since she was a postmistress, the early American postal system from constitutionfacts.com, and I had no clue about this, okay? And they have a wonderful map of the early American map of postal road between Boston and New York City. In the early American colonies, there was no organized postal service until the late 17th century, and even then it operated much differently than it does today. Before this time, the Americans relied on friends, merchants, and sometimes even the, nat even the natives, po the native population, to carry their mail for them. That was the British North American postal system. At the command of British King and Queen William and Mary, in 1692, when New Jersey Governor Andrew Hamilton established postmasters in each of the exiting North American colonies. The very first long-distance route was between Williamsburg, Virginia, and Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Because there was no official post office, the early postal writers would deposit mail at taverns in the community instead of delivering directly to a person's address. You know, Yankee Mon, taverns were like the bomb back then. They were so important. Yes. I mean, we've even reported when the British uh, appointed governors would dissolve a colony's uh, assembly, they'd go, to, they'd go to the tavern. Well, yes, big deal. We'll just go to the tavern. Mm -hmm. <laughs> See, I wish that was like that now so we wouldn't have to pay for all these government buildings. Yes. I know. <laughs> it's ridiculous. You should see the, my Capitol building, how elaborate it is. It's, it's ridiculous. And the upkeep on it costs a fortune. Let him go to the tavern. <laughs> Richard, Fairbank, Richard Fairbanks Tavern, in which is now Boston, Massachusetts, was the official repository for many for mail received from overseas at the time, and is thus the first American post office. Did you know that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Before the American Revolution, very little official mail was exchanged throughout the colonies. However, 
when things when well, however when things began to heat up in the 1760s, a much greater need arose for more organized postal service. When the Stamp Act of 1765 sent an uproar through the colonies, the citizens began planning to overthrow the British Imperial Post and open up a purely American one. The United States Post Office was ordered by the Second Continental Congress on July 26, 1775. Benjamin Franklin oversaw its creation as head of the department for a short while. I had no idea about this. And my father retired from the post office. He was a postal worker his adult life. <laughs> I mean, most of my, all my whole adult life and his. And I had no idea about the history of the post office. That's how bad our education was. Mm-hmm. In 1789, George Washington appointed Massachusetts resident Samuel Osgood as first American postmaster general, which is constitutional. At the time, there were 75 official post offices and more than 2,000 miles of post roads. And that's one of the things that, they, the, that the Congress and the government can take property for post roads, but only for roads, not to give to another another entity so they can make money off of it. Right. And they could, there's only three things that they can do eminent domain for, three things, and that's it. Not anything else they're doing, and post roads is one of them. And you have to be compensated for it properly. Okay. Um, the, post o- the post office department hired most post riders who would take desolate roads hundreds of miles through treacherous conditions to deliver the mail to the various post offices. One of these postal riders was Israel Bissell. Yeah, he was a Jew. One of the riders commissioned to alert the colonies that the British troops were moving in the early stages of the American War for Independence. I bet you didn't know that either, because all we hear about is Paul Revere. That's it. Well, Israel Bessel was also one of the, the, there was over 250 people who wrote to warn about the British coming. Not just Paul Revere. It's, again, Yankee Mom, it's so disgusting what we don't know. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. two, over 250 people did this. A little girl, a 16-year-old, did a ride as well. Mm-hmm. Sybil, Lennington, look her up. <laughs> okay. Um, the first official congressionally recognized post office department opened in the United States in 1792, its central hub being Philadelphia. Article 1, Section 8, Clause 7, of the newly ratified United States Constitution empowered Congress to establish post office and roads under the supervision of the executive branch. Uh, no. No, no, no. No, there is nothing in Article One that allows the executive branch to supervise. Let me just put a, a stamp on that one right there. There is absolutely nothing in Article One. The executive branch is only supposed to oversee its own departments. That's it. It has no supervision over the Congress or the Senate and what they do at all, and no power over them. I cannot believe that this constitutional facts put that in, can you? Mm-mm. Okay, so listen to me again. This is very important. Article 1 is just for the Congress, the representatives in the House, and they are actually, the, to me, the more powerful because it's prolonged this article. 
as you go in through, well, it has, no, it has to do with the Congress and the Senate, right, both of them. They have the, they, as far as the Constitution is concerned, have the most power over anything. They have, and if you, if you read the Constitution, if you don't want to read it, go to Patriots Pub, PatriotsPub.us, and you can listen to what they, what they did. But as you go through the Constitution, each article that governs each branch of the government gets smaller, leaving less power to that branch. The smallest branch that has the least power is the judicial. They have the least power. Not the most that they have now. Um, they're going to have to arrest me because if they ever charge me with anything that's unconstitutional and they send a warrant for me, I'm not going. They're going to have to take me screaming. Because mm-hmm. the judges have no power over me. Constitutionally, they don't. They have the least amount of power. Article 1 has the most amount of power. It has to do with the House of Representatives and the Senate. And the executive branch has no power over them. Wow, I'm, I'm really outraged. I'm going to show this to Brian. <laughs> oh, my Lord. Okay, so I'm going to go back to Mary. And then we're going to finish off with the Battle of Rhode Island. And then I just found an interesting article on the Loyalist Press and how it affected um, um, the Patriot, uh, Patriot Press. It was, it's very interesting. Okay, if we get to it. Yeah. Newspapers were becoming essential forms of communication, and their numbers quickly doubled as colonists turned to them to spread revolutionary ideas and keep up with the quickly developing conflict. Unlike her brother, who used the paper to promote his own opinions, Mary Catherine Goddard used a more objective, impersonal, and professional tone. Good for her. During the war, inflation hurt the printing business, and so she ran a book bindery to supplement her income and accepted food products from those who could not afford to pay their subscription to the paper. Good. Now, listen to this woman. She's giving up all her time. She's giving up all her own money, and now she's giving up uh, people paying for this prescription. She's, she's, she's so loyal and patriot to the cause that she's willing to get, get food to, for her paper. So if she's getting food to, for her paper, she's paying to run it if they're not paying for subscription, right? Right, yeah, well, she has food, but, you know, you have to... Um, a, a lot of the problems with the newspapers during the war was um, the lack of ink and paper because it was brought in from England. It was imported. And so they had to start making their own, which took time, and if they could get what was needed to make it. So that's one reason that the newspapers also had a hard time um, you know why some some didn't last through the, the the war because they couldn't get the supplies, being that we were shut off. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know. Okay, uh, let's see. She never missed an edition of the paper between seven, 1775 and 1784, when many other papers did during these years of the American Revolution, while the country was in such a turmoil. During these times of confusion about whether the colonial or the revolutionary government was in control of Baltimore, she also kept the mail going by occasionally paying post riders with her own money. 
Independence was declared in Philadelphia on July 4, 1776, when the Declaration was adopted by Congress. John Hancock famously led other members of the Continental Congress in signing the handwritten document. By doing so, these men were declaring their treason against the established government, and like all revolutionaries, they would have been executed had they been caught. Not all signers were as courageous as Hancock, however, and not all colonies were as rebellious as Massachusetts. Thus, for the next six months, printed copies of the Declaration of Independence circulated throughout the new nation without the signers' names. Finally, in January 1777, Mary Catherine Goddard, an independent and courageous woman, published the first copy of the Declaration with the identities revealed. It not only was a big news scoop, it also had political impact in forcing all signers to match their words with deeds. It also put Mary Catherine in danger. They're not saying it. By her printing it, she was also could be convicted of treason. Well, anybody who was for the Patriot cause, I just remember this. Anybody who was with the Patriot cause, thought to be with the Patriot cause, might be living with a Patriot, were all seen as the enemy of the king, which meant death, or at least imprisonment before death. If they yep, exactly. And and this this put her in danger. I just <laughs> and I'd like all of the wonderful and magnificent and brave women that we have been doing on the show on both sides, because we were brothers and sisters before this war. It tore us apart. And that's why Yankee Mom and I are doing this because we don't want it to happen again. And we have the tool to make sure it does not. It's called the Constitution. It's called the rule of law. Anyway, just like all the other women we've done, they were fearless. They they believed in this cause. They believed in what they were fighting for. And that goes for the loyalists as well. They really did believe that we could not win the war and that they needed to be with the king. And they were women of their conviction. While the founding fathers went on to the fame she literally thrust on them, Mary Catherine Goddard sank into obscurity. William was never able to become successful at any occupation. After trying to work in the postal system, he tried his hand at politics and was jealous of his sister's success. In 1784, Mary Catherine's name disappeared from the journal, and historians agree that William most likely forced his sister to quit. There is a record of her filing five lawsuits against him at the time. Yeah. In 1789, the year that the U.S. Constitution was adopted, Mary Catherine Goddard also was forced out of her Baltimore postal position in favor of a male appointee. Women in some colonies lost some rights with the new federal government, but women continued to run post offices in other places. But Baltimore was a big city, and this was a patronage position. The only reason that she was given was that, being that a female, she could not handle the traveling the job was soon demand. She appealed to George Washington and Congress about the injustice, and over 200 Baltimore businessmen endorsed her petition, but nothing changed. Mary Catherine Goddard spent the remaining years of her life running a bookstore in Baltimore. She died in 1816, having been a trailblazer in both printing and postal service. Now, not only with her and, you know, as a woman, but we've, when we've done other women, like the husbands were generals, the same thing happened to them. I mean, there was a lot of people that lost their estates. They were put in jail, debtors' prison before, you know, the Constitution said that couldn't happen. Uh, they, these really famous 
and robust people were devastated after the, the revolution. So this is not the first sad story that ends like this. We've had many of the, these stories end this way, correct? Yes, yes. Um, well, yeah, and and people of means lost their fortunes because mm-hmm. uh, they basically sent it to the 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 Congress and the military, the army. Mm-hmm. Of course, they never got it back. You know. Yep. Goodard's petition to Postmaster General Samuel Osgood is in the National Archives, along with other records of her tenure as head of Baltimore's post office. A copy of the Declaration of Independence printed by her is at the Maryland Hall of Records. Does anybody know this? Is her name on it? Nope. That declaration, the first Declaration of Independence, with all of the founders' signatures, was printed by a woman, people. God, this infuriates me. <laughs> you know, learning about history, I either get angry or I get really sad. But I feel like crying. Yeah, yeah. And and this is another reason um, that one must read history, if only to get the perspective on humanity. You know, when, it, when all these um, progressives get out there, like, dear, feel the burn, Sanders, uh, free this, free that, free, free, free. Um, I grind my teeth because that means somebody's going to pay for it and it isn't him. They're really good at spending other people's money. And our founders believed in private property. Private meaning you owned it, the government couldn't take it. Oh, how things change. And still things okay. change. We have about 20 minutes left, so if you want to get to the Battle of Rhode Island. Okay. Well, this, there wasn't much, much about, there weren't many battles in Rhode Island. Um, it was basically the harbor that, that was uh, near Gansett Bay that was the, the real sticky point there. But um, on August 29th in 1778, the uh, in Newport, Rhode Island, the Battle of Quaker Hill, as it's also known, uh, took place. It says many thousands of men were gathered at Fort Barton in the summer and fall of 1777 for an October invasion of Aquidneck. However, because of the allowance of insufficient time for the amassing of material and the inexperience of the officer in charge and the accompanying bad weather at the designated times of invasion, two half-hearted attempts to establish beachheads across Holland's ferries was were thwarted. In the spring, General George Washington selected Major General John Sullivan to assume command of Fort Barton and to direct staging operations for a new invasion attempt of Aquidneck. The Marquis de Lafayette was to coordinate the participation of a French fleet and landing force, and a grand plan of a strike by land and sea was formulated. On August 9th, the Battle of Rhode Island began with the crossing at Holland's Ferry of 11,000 Continental Line troops and militia. The French Navy blocked Narragansett Bay, forcing the British to scuttle their small naval force. The American Army, under Sullivan, landed at Rhode Island and forced the smaller British-German force to withdraw behind fortifications built around the town of Newport. Within a few days, a large British naval force arrived to challenge the French fleet. The French fleet sailed out of the bay to do battle in the open ocean. As the two fleets maneuvered, Preparing for battle, a hurricane came upon them and scattered the fleets from August 13th to the 14th, causing severe damage to both sides. 
For the land forces, the high winds and rains also did great damage to both sides, but the British defenders fared better because they were behind prepared positions and in town. For the next week, elements of the scattered French fleet returned to the bay, but then all of the French ships sailed to Boston for repairs. Lafayette's disappointment at a reduced role of command, the French Admiral Vestang's failure to contribute landing troops, and the severe damage sustained by the French fleet brought the full force of the defending British, Hessian, and Loyalist troops to bear on the hardy invaders from Tiverton's shores. Without the sea attack to draw the attention of many of the defenders away from the land attack, the British line held. The American army, which was much larger than the British, was composed largely of short-term militia soldiers who had joined up just for this campaign. When the French fleet sailed away, they became very discouraged, knowing that they could not take the town and hold it without strong naval support. By the end of the month, the disheartened army began to withdraw. On August 29th, the British perceived that the Americans were attempting to leave the island and sail out of their lines to attack, hoping to disrupt the retreat. The Americans were moving to the north end of the long, narrow island and crossing the narrow water to the mainland. The Americans made a stand on Butts Hill, 12 miles from Newport, which they had fortified. The British tried to turn their right wing in the morning when Green, um, Nathaniel Green, I would think, yes, Nathaniel Green, commanding it, charged front, assailed the pursuers vigorously and drove them to their strong defense on Quaker Hill. A general engagement ensued when the British line was broken and driven back in confusion to Turkey Hill. The day was very sultry and many perished by the heat. The action ended at near 3 p.m., but a sluggish cannonade was kept up until sunset. In this engagement, the Americans lost about 200 men and 260 British men. The 1st Rhode Island, the first black regiment in Americans' history, took part in the action, located on the right that is the west side of the American line, they defended their part of the hill against fierce attacks by German troops. Numbering 400 men, the 1st Rhode Island acquitted itself well, repulsing three separate and distinct charges from 1,500 Hessians under Count Donap. They beat them back with such tremendous loss that Count Donap, or Donop, Donop, D-O-N-O-P, at once applied for an exchange, fearing that his men would kill him if he went into battle with them again for having exposed them to such slaughter. Such were the Hessians. After a siege of 12 days by the Americans dug in on Honeyman's Hill in Middletown, a weary and disappointed Sullivan realized the land attack alone could not penetrate the the English line. With much regret, Sullivan was obliged to order withdrawal. On August 30th, near midnight, the last of the Continentals was removed from Aquidneck. The regular troops were sent to rejoin Washington. The militia returned home, and only a small force was left to man the guns at Fort Barton. The Battle of Rhode Island was over. On August 31st, Clinton arrived with a reinforcement of 4,000 men. He soon returned to New York after sending General Gray to destroy a large number of ships with magazines, stores, wharves, warehouses, and other buildings at New Bedford and miles, or mills and houses at Fairhaven. Property to the amount of over $300,000 was destroyed. Then the marauders proceeded to Martha's Vineyard, where they demanded of and received from the defenseless inhabitants, militia arms, public money, 300 oxen, and 10,000 sheep. So that didn't end well. Mm. But here, um, they're, they're on encyclopedia.com, they tell of, uh, and this involves um, Mary Catherine's brother, William, 
is in the early 1770s, royal officials recognized the power of colonial printers in fomenting discontent among the American people. All the loyalist postmasters destroyed publications they deemed to be seditious, such as William Goddard's uh, Pennsylvania Chronicle and Universal Advertiser Journal. Though these efforts were not enough to stop the flood of anti-British material, Tory writers exchanged verbal attacks with their Whig counterparts in their newspapers. Jonathan Sewell published five series of anonymous anonymous essays between 1763 and 1775, refuting the criticism heaped on the Massachusetts royal governor. One of the most famous exchanges involved John Adams as Novanglus and Daniel Leonard, Massachusettsianists. <laughs> oh, God, anyways. In the Boston Gazette and Country Journal, the Massachusetts Gazette and Boston Post Boy and Advertiser in 1774 and 1775, while Adams emphasized liberty and innovation, Leonard extolled order and imperial stability. God, I hope he wasn't an ancestor of mine. Um, and once the war commenced, it became clearly evident that the Whigs dominated the press and postal networks and could use these advantages to crush Tory Polemics. As a result, loyalist propaganda was circumcised, limited in time and place to those areas under direct British military control, usually major cities and their surrounding communities. During the course of the Revolutionary War, the cities occupied by royal troops for an extended period of time included New York, Newport, Newport Philadelphia, Savannah, and Charleston. So, um, they not only... You know, they, they not only burned down each other's houses, but they they went after their 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 speech. Yep. Okay, we have about five minutes until we do our departing spiel. Do you want to read about the loyalist paper? I just did. I can. Oh, read. you did. I can just. I, I thought you were reading. Yeah, I went right into it after the the uh, the battle. Um, and now, where the hell? Okay, there. Uh, but I can read more. There is more. I thought it was interesting. Oh, yeah. that's it. Uh, yeah, because I didn't even notice that you talked about <laughs> it. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, I think you went into it too quick. I think I did, probably. Yeah, yeah. Uh Okay, well, let's talk a little bit more about it then, because this really, this, this, it, it's interesting to look at the other side, too. It said, if 15 loyalist newspapers appeared at various times following the Declaration of Independence, but not a single one published continuously from 76 to the end of the war. The largest number in any one year was eight in 1778, while the smallest was five in 1779. New York City had the longest-lived and most popular Loyalist papers. It was a Loyalist hotbed, including Hugh Gaines' New York Gazette and the Weekly Mercury, Alexander Robinson's The Royal American Gazette, James Irvington's Royal Gazette, and William Lewis's New York Mercury. Because of the abundance of city newspapers, the British in 1779 organized the daily, uh, following daily schedule. Gain published on Mondays, Riverton on Wednesdays and Saturdays, Robertson's on Thursdays, and Lewis on Fridays. The Newport Gazette in Rhode Island ran from January 1777 to October 1779, while Philadelphia had three Tory newspapers during the British occupation from September 77 to June 78. Um, 
There were also two German-language newspapers with pro-British slants, but they lasted only a few months. Let's see. The, the, these newspapers served the royal cause on several levels. They acted in a psychological capacity, providing a semblance of normalcy for areas under British military and civil control. They also stimulated the economy by running advertisements and other information useful to consumers and merchants. Moreover, the papers announced British victories and published the decrees of army commanders and magistrates. Probably their greatest purpose was to provide a useful means by which loyalists could lambast the patriots and express the needs of king's men to the crown. Loyalist propaganda addressed various themes when attacking the patriot cause. First and foremost, the legal justification, both civil and biblical, of suppressing the rebellion was not lost on the loyalist propagandists who urged that obedience to legal authority is the positive command of God and the constant doctrine of his word. Now, doesn't that sound like a Democrat? <laughs> Using God, you know, to, to further their cause. You know, and they, oh, tyrants never change. On 28th November 1776, 948 persons signed the Loyalist Declaration of Dependence expressing their dedication to British constitutional supremacy. In the Christian soldier's duty briefly delineated in 1777, Charles Inglis appealed to soldiers to assert the just rights of your amiable, insulted sovereign, a sovereign whose numerous virtues add luster to his throne. Warnings of patriot illusions of victory also surfaced. On the 3rd of October, 1778, Concord in quotes, wrote the following admonishment in Rivington's Royal Gazette. Look forward, Americans. Compare the secure, prosperous, and truly free and independent state, which is now most certainly and immediately in your offer to the hazards of intermediate distresses and probably consequences of the projects into which the Congress wished to plunge you. Ah, oh, fear, fear politics. <laughs> of course, the, the Patriots also did fear politics. By the same token, Tory writers downplayed the defeat of British Red Coats by remembering how the martial prowess of England had reigned supreme in previous conflicts. And like all propagandists, they spread rumor and falsehoods whenever to their advantage. For example, on 13 February 1781, Gain reported the defeat of British Lieutenant Colonel Bannister Tarleton at the Cow Pen, South Carolina. Simultaneously, he printed an ex extract of a letter that claimed Lord Charles Cornwallis had defeated General Nathaniel Green and taken 1,600 prisoners. <laughs> Although Green's defeat later proved to be false, Gain maintained that the news arrived last evening from Jersey from a person who saw the letter and who may be relied on. You know, that anonymous one not allowed to speak to the subject. Pro-British writers also focused on the depravity of the enemy, reporting on the depredations of rebel troops and the arrogance of Congress. Overtures made by the Carlisle Peace Commission in 1778. So, they ultimately failed in their mission, patriot cause, although it took the moral high ground by appealing to the colonial sense of loyalty to a gracious king. The press never presented a fully developed alternative, and for that matter, appealing solution to the political crisis. Loyalist press existed as long as the presence of British redcoats made it possible. And there you wow. are. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Yeah. So they gave out in misinformation as well. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. They they both um you know they definitely uh 
and it's fighting words, you know. I mean, you, you if you go to the, you find the original papers, which you can. Um, in fact, I was being totally distracted from my research by reading the uh, the uh, Providence um, Gazette in in. In 1787 editions, because they were talking about um, the Constitution, and, and they had uh, uh, in September they had um, printed the whole Constitution in their newspaper. But there were other things like what was happening in Holland and what was going to happen in Britain. Holland did this, and then the French were going to go do that, and then up in Boston, you know, <laughs> and there you can get salt from this person. And I mean, it was, it's just incredible. And, and when you read the Massachusetts Gazette and, you know, the, the uh, Massachusetts and Connecticut papers, because they were, you know, blustering in, in the early 70s, and they, they have papers you can read that are online, um, you know, and you read the articles about the battles and you read the articles about, you know, what the king's doing and what Parliament said and, you know, Lord North and... And and all this and and oh my God, I, I mean it, it it's it's hysterical in in the literal sense of the word. I mean histrionic, very colorful language and 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 just passionate and historic, you know, hysterical and oh, <laughs> and all well, from the different people. Well, we have three minutes left, and I. I'm going to have to let you go out because I just heard something so outrageous on Mark Levin's show. All this general telling this reporter that they never said anything about boots on the ground. That they never said that there would never be boots on the ground in Syria. Well, maybe the generals didn't, but uh, Obama did. Well, he played all these clips from everybody that said that there would never be boots on the ground. Right. Yeah, no more boots. I'm ending war forever, quotes the monarch of the United States. Um, well, that's too bad because they're sending over boots. And uh, unfortunately, in Egypt, they're moving their troops out from the coast, um, from the, the uh, border of Israel, because the militants have been firing on them. And the way it is, as a peacekeeping unit, they can't fire at the militants. Only the Egyptian army can. Can you believe that? I can. That would be our our uh, civilian micromanagers of our military. So I was very disheartened to hear that, and I'm I'm even more so that they're sending in freaking SOS as basically kindergarten teachers. So, you know, pray for our guys and gals that are headed out into, you know, the land of hell, and pray for their families, too. Um, a lot of them have little kids, so... And and I still haven't heard if my daughter's going to Egypt or not. So, <laughs> so far she is. Uh, so say a prayer for her, too, that she doesn't have to go and leave her babies behind for absolutely no reason that sounds good because the military is so screwed up right now. 
um, and, and do, and, and really pay attention to uh, our, our next commander-in-chief. Be very, very careful who you vote for. In that, thank you for stopping by. Enjoy this one thoroughly. And do come back next week. We'll be here with another just awesome lady from our beginnings of the country. Now, I shall say good night. God bless America and pray for us all. God bless us. Good night now. <laughs>